following is a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more information on Shaw, for our teaching resources, visit www.shaw.org.nz. So, we are starting uh, back into our series called Origins. Took a break last week, but we're back into the series now. And so if you're just joining us, that's fine. We're working our way through the first three chapters of the Bible, Genesis 1, 2, and 3. And these are really foundational chapters, not just because they're the first three chapters in the Bible, but because they set the scene for everything else that is to come in the whole biblical story. Everything else rests on what is revealed, these, these really foundational narratives at the beginning of our Bible. And so, so far, quick recap, we have worked our way through Genesis 1. So we've looked at the story of God creating the heavens and the earth, all of these things that God has brought about. And then, a couple of weeks ago, we looked at the creation of the first man. Remember this? God created Adam and put him to work in the garden. And then God, after he created the first man, stepped back and said, I can do better, right? So today we come to the creation of a woman. It's the battle of the sexes this morning at Shaw Community Church. So because, so we're in Genesis 2, right? So if you've got a Bible, open it up there. And because this passage is partly about marriage, not completely about marriage, but partly about marriage, I thought it would be nice to have a married couple uh, read the passage together to us this morning. And so Zach and Catherine Warner are going to come and read this text for us. Genesis 2. The Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now the Lord God had formed out of the ground all the wild animals and all the birds in the sky. He brought them to the man to see what he would name them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. So the man gave names to all the livestock, the birds in the sky, and all the wild animals. But for Adam, no suitable helper was found. So the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep. And while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. The man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. Adam and his wife were both naked, and they felt no shame. All right, thank you, guys. So just before we dive in here, let me, let me just briefly say that even though, even though this passage is about marriage, it's not just about marriage, okay? So if you're single here this morning and you're starting to think this is going to be one of those messages, this is one of those marriage messages, and this is completely irrelevant for me, and why did I bother coming today? It's okay, all right? This is not just about marriage. This, there's all kinds of issues going on in this passage. This is about gender, and what it means to be men and women made in the image of God. This is about manhood and womanhood and our sexuality. It's about relationships between the sexes of all kinds, not just marriage. And yes, it is about marriage. But whether you are, whatever your marital status is this morning, there's something in here for you, okay? So whether you're married, non-married, divorced, separated, widowed, unmarried, wish you weren't married, whatever you are, 
there's something here for you, okay? I promise you, as long as you are male or female, all right, or anywhere in between, this is going to be relevant to you, okay? I promise. All right, let's dive in here. I want to walk through this passage. And so the first thing that happens in verse 18 is the Lord God says, he's already created Adam, but now the Lord God says, it is not good for the man to be alone, right? Well, the woman said, amen. Lots of reasons why that is true. It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. Now, that phrase, because we're just picking the text up here, we don't quite get the impact of it, but that phrase, it is not good for the man to be alone, that is supposed to hit us between the eyes. Uh, If you've been reading, if you've read Genesis 1 up to this point, if you've read the story consecutively, uh, you read in Genesis 1 time and time and time again, it is good. You know, as God creates all of these things, as you work through the seven days of creation, we read continuously, it is good, it is good, it is good after every day, it is good. And then you get to Genesis 2 and you get the statement, it is not good for the first time. Something in God's creation is not good. And what is not good is aloneness. What is not good is for the man to be alone. What is not good is isolation. What is not good is loneliness. We are not meant to be solitary beings. We are not meant to be on our own. And so God says, I will make a helper. I will make a companion suitable for him. I will bring relationship. I will bring community. Now, we need to look just briefly at this word helper. I will make a helper suitable for him because this is one of those words that is sometimes used to suggest that women are created to be subordinate to men. They're created to be lesser. They're just helpers of men. And if you you hear that word in English, just the word helper, it can kind of sound a little bit like that, that there's some some kind of subservient role that's going on here and women are just created to serve at the whim of men. But the word helper in Hebrew, interestingly, is never used of an inferior person helping a superior person. In fact, most of the time in the Old Testament, the word is used of God. God is our helper. For example, in Exodus, my father's God was my helper. He saved me from the sword of Pharaoh. So God is the helper of Israel. God is the helper of his people. God doesn't help his people from a position of subordination. God doesn't help his people from a position of inferiority. He doesn't help his people from a position of subservience. He helps them from a position of strength, right? He helps them from a position of power. He comes alongside them to rescue them and to save them. So there is no hint in this word, helper, that woman is being created as some kind of subordinate creature, just some kind of servant or some kind of slave to the man. She is being created in every way as his equal. A better word to translate this word helper would be ally. She is being created as his ally as his partner, as his companion in the gift of life and in the, in the work that God has given Adam to do. She is his ally. She is his equal. So even if the word helper doesn't sound like that to you, that's how it's used. That's how it's used throughout the Old Testament. God is saying, I'm bringing this, I'm going to create this woman as an equal to you to cure you of your own loneliness and isolation and bring companionship and bring community to human beings. So I will create a 
helper. I will, I will make an ally suitable for him. And so what God does in the first instance is then he brings all the animals along to Adam. And he gets Adam to name all of these animals. And this is a mar- marvelous little scene, I think, in the Bible, a, a scene that probably doesn't get the attention it deserves, the naming of the animals ceremony. It's great, isn't it? I heard, I heard a good joke on this, by the way, um, how you know, Adam, after he's named all of these animals, spent the whole day naming every possible variety of animal, he gets right to the end of the whole process. And the very last animal that comes along this cute little cuddly fluffy thing and it scurries along and Adam says cat and God says hang on a minute I didn't make those (laughs) so if you're a dog person you know you might like that one so anyway all right moving on with the story that was a diversion so God brings all these animals along, Adam names the animals, but among all these animals, no suitable helper is found. So there are, none, none of these creatures is going to be a suitable ally for Adam, a suitable companion for him. And so the next thing that happens, now God gets serious. In verse 21, the Lord God caused the man to fall into a deep sleep, and while he was sleeping, he took one of the man's ribs and then closed up the place with flesh. Now that word rib, it never actually means a single rib. Did you know that? We have this idea of Eve being created from one of Adam's ribs, but the word, the Hebrew word is silah, and it doesn't mean just a single rib. A better translation is side. Right? In fact, most of your translations will have that in the margin there somewhere. She was created from his side. It refers not to, a, not to just a little piece like a little single rib. It's a whole side of something that's being talked about here, like a side of beef, like a big chunk, like a big side of a creature or a thing. And so God is doing some pretty major surgery here on Adam. While Adam's sleeping, God basically carves off a whole side of his body and then miraculously closes that place up again and reforms Adam, which presumably he can do. He's formed him once. He can form half of him again. And then from the side that he has taken, he forms this woman. So she's taken from his side. So husbands, when you talk about your wives being your better half, right? That's actually more true than you realize. She is half of Adam. She's taken from his side. And again, I think there is a, there's, a, there's a significance to this. There's a symbolism to this idea of woman being created from the side of man. I think it speaks to her equality with him. Uh, the famous Bible commentator Matthew Henry puts it this way. He puts it beautifully. The woman was made out of a rib out of the side of Adam, not made out of his head to rule over him, nor out of his feet to be trampled upon by him, but out of his side to be equal with him, under his arm to be protected, and near his heart to be beloved. Isn't that lovely? So those ideas, those are the ideas we should hear, I think, in this text, that there is equality here, there is love, there is protection There is a cherishing of the other. She is his ally. She is his partner. She is a partner with him in the gift of life and in the work that he's given to do. She is an ally. Now, before we go on here and look at the next couple of verses, just want to say a word about gender and gender identity. It's relevant in this passage because God creates male and female. 
And that is obviously a part of the story in Genesis 1 and 2. And this is increasingly an issue today. It's being more and more talked about today, the idea of gender identity. And increasingly there is a view that gender is something we can choose. Gender is something fluid, something that we can create or we can identify with or we can construct ourselves. And sometimes the way that you hear this talked about is that uh, we, are, we are given or we are born with a biological sex, that is, we are anatomically male or anatomically female, but gender is something you can choose and you can identify with whatever gender you want to. And sometimes gender is seen as a spectrum with male on one end and female on the other and a whole lot of different iterations in between. So, for example, if you start a Facebook account in the US or in the UK now, uh, you come to the part where you choose your gender and there are 71 different gender options that you can choose from. And I think there's also a custom option as well. I think in New Zealand it's just male, female, and custom. Uh, you can build your own. But 71 different options. So it's not, it's not just male and female and transgender. It's, it's gender queer, gender neutral, gender questioning, agender, polygender, transgender, all kinds of different gender options. In, in theory, an infinite number because people can keep on suggesting new ones. And so this is kind of the, the cultural milieu that, that we're living in here, this, this idea of gender questioning and gender fluidity. And as Christians, we need to have a view of gender that is based on Scripture. And we find the, the foundations of gender identity in Genesis 1 and 2. And what we find is that gender, our gender, male and female, are intrinsic to who we are as human beings. So when God creates humanity, he creates us as male and female. And it's not as if Adam was a non-gendered being before Eve. It's not like Adam was agender, uh, non-gendered, and then he became male and, and Eve became female. Adam was created as a male. Eve was created as a female. So the man was created as a man and called to live out his identity as a man. A woman was created as a woman and called to live out her identity as a woman. There is a biblical thing called manhood and there is a biblical thing called womanhood. And these are fixed and not fluid categories. In fact, they are tied to the image of God. In Genesis 1, when you read, in the image of God, he made them, male and female, he created them. So our sexuality, our gender identity is part of what makes us human. It's part of what makes us creatures in the image of God. And when we relate to each other as men to women and as women to men, we are expressing something of the image of God. We are expressing and reflecting something of the unity and diversity within God's being himself. And so God has given us gender as a gift. He's created male and female, not a whole lot of different versions. He has given us both our biological sex and our gender, and those two things are tied together. They are fixed categories and not fluid categories in Scripture. Now, having said that, I think that we need to also allow for the fact that there is a lot more diversity to what constitutes manhood and womanhood than what we typically think. There are only two categories, but those categories are probably broader than often what we believe and are led to believe. So a little while ago, I read a book which talked about how guys, men should be, all of us should be hunter-gatherer types. 
You know, we should be outdoorsy, we should be high-octane, macho, adrenaline-seeking, thrill-seeking, risk-taking, rugged, bearded individuals, you know? And I kind of came away from reading that book feeling like, am I really a man, you know? Am, <laughs> sort of questioning my masculinity, you know? Am, I, I'm not sure that I fit in this category because I think that masculinity can look like a lot of different things, can't it? Anyone with me? Can't it look, I mean, Men can be men and still be into crochet, right? Men can be men and still be into basket weaving or what else? I'd probably draw the line at scrapbooking, to be honest. I think that's, that's too far. But, you know, knitting, uh, ballet, ballroom dancing, go crazy, fantastic. The point is just that we don't have to stop being men in order to do these things. And I think that's part of the issue. We can still engage in these things as men, confidently and faithfully. And vice versa, women can engage in all sorts of traditionally male hobbies, whether it's hunting or fixing cars or whatever it is, and can engage in those activities as women. And that's fine. We can be faithful as men and women, even though what defines masculinity and femininity can be pretty broad. In fact, I think that the more narrowly you define those categories of what is masculine and what is feminine, the more people you're going to have questioning their gender because they don't fit your categories. The more narrowly that you define exactly what constitutes manhood and womanhood, the more people you will have unsure about their gender because they don't fit the box. So let's give breadth and diversity to what masculinity and femininity can look like, but let's still confidently, faithfully engage in these things as men, as women. And here, as one final word on this, let me just say that we need to be people of tremendous grace towards those who struggle personally around issues of gender identity. Yes, it's one thing to have biblical convictions on this issue, and we should and we must, but we need to also deal with truckloads of grace with people who really personally struggle because there are huge struggles around these issues. People with gender confusion, gender dysphoria, gender identity issues, people who feel trapped in the wrong body, that is all a real struggle for many, many people. And just because it may not be for you doesn't mean it's not for a lot of other people. And as Christians, it is not our role to judge people, treat them harshly or severely. It is to love them like Jesus. Isn't that right? to love them like Jesus from beginning to end and come alongside them in their journey, walk with them and show them grace from beginning to end. So we need, yes, we need the truth of God's word, biblical conviction, but we need the grace of Jesus in responding to those who struggle in these areas in many different ways. Okay, enough said on that. Let's press on. So God creates woman from the side of man and then we get to verse, where are we? Verse 22 then the Lord God made a woman from the rib he had taken out of the man, and he brought her to the man. And the man said, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman, for she was taken out of man. Now, that phrase, bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh, Adam is not just describing Eve's literal relationship to him here as being taken from his body. There's something deeper going on here. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. Scholars have noticed that these phrases, this language, is the language of covenant. 
It's the language of commitment. That times that this phrase is used elsewhere in the Bible, it's the language of making a covenant to another person. It's a pledge of loyalty. And so Adam is not just expressing a biological relationship here to Eve. He is expressing a covenantal relationship to her. He is making a commitment. He is making a pledge. He is committing himself. He is binding himself to Eve in a covenant relationship. In other words, this is the first marriage in the Bible. This is a commitment between husband and wife. Even though the word marriage is not used in the text, that's exactly what is going on here. Adam and Eve are getting married. These words are like the first wedding vows in the Bible. Bone of my bones, flesh of my flesh. It would be the equivalent today of uh, for richer, for poorer. In sickness and in health, till death do us part. That's what's happening. There is a pledge. There is a commitment. There is a loyalty that is being given in exchange. This is marriage. And that is why we talk about marriage as a covenant relationship. This is so important. Marriage is so much more than just a legal entity. So much more than just a, just a contract or an agreement or even just a relationship. It is a covenant. Biblically, marriage is a covenant relationship. A covenant involves the binding of persons together, the binding of lives. It's not just making promises, although it involves that. It is much more holistic. It's much more intimate. It's much more personal. It's the binding of persons to each other. It's not just the exchange of promises. It's the exchange of persons. When God makes a covenant in Scripture with His people, He binds Himself to his people. He binds himself to Israel in a holistic way. When people in Scripture make a covenant with one another, they bind themselves together with God as their witness. So that in the Bible, God is either a party to the covenant or he is a witness to the covenant. He's always implicated. Covenants are always spiritual. They always involve God. Marriage is a covenant. When two followers of Jesus get married, they are entering into more than just a legal union. They are entering into a spiritual covenant, binding the two lives together before God. When two non-Christians get married, they are entering into a legal entity. And that's still good. right? That is still something to be celebrated. That's a good thing. Marriage is a good thing. Even if it is just the law of the land, that's still good. But that is a categorically different thing to the Christian covenant of marriage. When two Christians get married before God, they're entering into a union where God himself is coming, taking their two lives together as only he can and creating covenant. And that is why even if tomorrow the New Zealand government said, we no longer recognize any such entity as marriage, there is no longer such a thing in New Zealand as marriage, would Christians stop getting married? No. Why? Because we believe marriage is more than just a legal entity. It transcends the bit of paper. It transcends the law. It is a legal thing, but so much more than that. And as Christians, we need to have this conviction. Marriage is a covenant. It's more than a contract. It's more than just a civic thing, a civic union. It is an entity before God, a spiritual covenant. And so as Adam and Eve, as husband and wife, enter into this covenant, at the end of this chapter, at the end of chapter two, we get a little glimpse into what this covenant involves. There's two dynamics of the marriage covenant, these two uh, elements in the covenant of marriage. Let me just cover them briefly. The first, in verse 24, is leaving. It says, that is why a man leaves his father and mother. So when 
husband and wife get married. Both of them leave their family of origin and they come together and they form a new family as husband and wife. Even if they don't have any kids, they are a family. They are a unit. They are an entity. And so that means that when you get married, and if you are married, then your mum and dad, your parents, are now your secondary family. Okay, That, that doesn't mean you, you abandon them. That doesn't mean you cut off communication with them. They're still important. But it means now they are your secondary family. And your primary family is your spouse. Your primary family is your husband or wife. And that means your primary commitment is to them, not to your parents or your in-laws. It means your primary loyalty is to them, not to your families of origin. Your primary allegiance is now to your husband or wife. And this is a huge issue because it's not just something that happens at the beginning of a marriage. This leaving needs to be continually monitored by married couples because it can cause problems all the way along. Anna and I have seen couples time and time again trip over this issue and at least one couple that's separated, divorced, because of this issue. Because for the wife, her father was such a dominant force in the marriage. Just his, his, his presence, even though he lived in a different country, just his influence... And his dominance and just the overcommunication in that marriage, it just infiltrated all kinds of areas of their marriage and eventually led to it breaking down. And so this is something we need to be aware of because as husbands and wives, there can be a lot of pressure on us to be loyal to our parents, sometimes over our spouse, can't they? And to meet their expectations rather than the expectations of our husband or wife. And there are ways that parents and in-laws can subtly, subtly, sometimes without even meaning to, put a bit of pressure on, put their expectations out there, influence the relationship, over-communicate, maybe hold a little bit of power over the relationship, especially if they're lending money, and have an influence in that marriage that can be unhealthy. And so those of you that are husbands and wives, let me just ask you, is there any way in which this leaving is an issue for you? Are there any ways in which your loyalty to your mum or dad or your in-laws is greater than it is to your spouse? Are there any issues where this is coming up for you? It, it can be the smallest of things. You know, I'll tell you one that keeps coming up is holidays. Where do you holiday over summer? Do you holiday where you and your spouse want to holiday? Or do you holiday where your parents or your in-laws really want you to holiday with them? Now, if you talk together about it and you decide that genuinely what the, what the two of you want to do is holiday with your parents, his parents, her parents, that's fine. But if this is something you are doing to keep your parents happy, if this is something that you are doing to kind of conform to their expectations, preferences, and so on, that's a failure of leaving. That's a failure of healthy separation in a marriage. And you've got to remember the interests of your spouse, the preferences of your spouse, the desires of your spouse are far more important than those of your parents. And if you are parents of a married couple or in-laws, if you've got married children, then give them space. Don't stick your nose in their business. Give them space. You can share your, your thoughts and your views, but give them space to grow and develop as a married couple. It is so important. Otherwise, you can compromise the intimacy between the two of them. Leaving is, is so important. And then the other element uh, from leaving is cleaving. And we see this in the same sentence. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife. And they become one flesh. The word united is the word 
Uh, well, it means to, to cling on to or to hold fast or to cleave to one another. That's where we get that word cleaving from. So the man, the husband and wife leave their families of origin and they cling to one another. They hold fast to one another. And the result of that is that they become one flesh. And for Adam and Eve, when you think about it, that idea of being one flesh, it was kind of a restoring to the original situation. That Adam and Eve originally were one flesh. She came from his body. They were one flesh. So she was taken out of his body. And now, through marriage, they are becoming one flesh again. But this time, not in the sense of being one physical body again, but becoming one entity, becoming one unit, becoming one team, becoming that one cord the Bible talks about of three strands where God has taken their two lives and himself in the middle and woven their lives and their stories together into one, that is one flesh. The idea of one flesh, it speaks to the idea of intimacy between husband and wife at every level. It's not just physical intimacy that's involved, but also emotional intimacy, spiritual intimacy, relational intimacy at every level. That idea of one flesh is couples that are constantly pursuing greater and greater oneness together. It's not just something that happens by virtue of being married. It is something we need to continue striving towards, moving towards and taking steps towards greater and greater oneness, greater and greater intimacy, greater and greater union together. And the beauty of marriage is this. The way this should happen is that it doesn't mean you lose your individual identity. You know, some people fear this, that does this one flesh idea mean that I'm kind of giving up who I am and we're both kind of just being swallowed up into each other. We're just being swallowed up into this big amorphous hole. No, in a good marriage, your individual identities are not diminished. They are strengthened. In a good marriage, your individual identity is enhanced because it is the love of your spouse that enables you to feel secure. It is the love of your spouse that enables you to have self-confidence and to know who you are, to be a strong and secure and independent person. And so the more that you're moving towards one another, what you're actually doing is helping people become stronger individuals, more secure individuals. But it's in the context of oneness. And so that one flesh actually involves both togetherness and otherness. It's appreciating the otherness of your spouse and helping them to be a strong and, and healthy and independent person, but by moving towards them in togetherness. And we have a beautiful picture of what that looks like at the end of this chapter. Adam and Eve, Adam and his wife were both naked and they felt no shame. And that's a picture not just of their physical nakedness together, but of vulnerability at every level. I think that physical nakedness is, is a symbol of a greater and more holistic vulnerability that they have, where every part of their life is open before the other person. There's no need to have secrets. There's no need to keep things off limits. There's no need for some part of their life to be shielded from the other person. No need for something to be kept away in a dark corner. They are open, they're vulnerable, and they're not ashamed. There's no need for embarrassment. There's no need for awkwardness. They're innocent. They're vulnerable, they're open with each other. Now that is very hard to achieve in our world because we live in a post-fall world. We live in the post-Genesis 3 world where sin has infected every part of our lives, every part of our relationships, including the marriage relationship, and now we live with all sorts of shame in our lives, don't we? We all carry shame in our lives, whether you're married or not. We all have shame in the background, maybe because of things that we've done, maybe because of things that have been done to us, 
or just secondary shame because of things that we've experienced. And so when husband and wife enter into marriage together, they bring all that shame with them. And they've got all that shame in their lives. And then sometimes we keep on doing things that generate shame for ourselves or for the other person. And so we all carry this shame. And shame acts as a barrier to vulnerability. Shame acts as a barrier to openness and the kind of intimacy that God wants us to have. And so the more shame that we experience in our lives, the more shame that we have in our marriage relationship, the less intimacy we're going to be able to enjoy the less of that openness and that one flesh union we're going to be able to have. And so I would just ask you again, married couples, those of you that are married, is there any way that shame in your life or in the life of your spouse is damaging the intimacy between you? Is there any way in which shame is becoming a barrier to vulnerability? And if there is, I want to encourage you simply, humbly, lovingly to talk about it. There is something about just bringing it out of the shadows, something about with shame, just, just bringing it out of the darkness and into the light and just naming it before each other and just being open with it. Even if you don't know how to fix it, even if you don't know what to do with it, just honestly naming it and having a conversation about it, just bringing it into the light robs it of so much of its power. Robs it of so much of the ability that it, when it's there and it's seen and it's talked about, it's never quite the massive, all-consuming thing that you thought it was. So just have a conversation about it, even if you don't know what to do with it, even if you don't know how to fix it, but you know that it's a barrier to vulnerability. You know that it's holding you back. You know that it's kind of hindering the relationship. Just have an honest conversation. And if you struggle to do that, if you're struggling to talk to each other, or if you just don't know how to work through it, the best thing you can do is sit down with a counsellor. The best thing you can do is sit down with a Christian counselor and have them help you to process these issues. And they will help you move through that shame that you're experiencing. Doesn't mean it's all going to go away overnight, but they will help you, give you some tools to move through that shame so that you can recover and reclaim that vulnerability and that intimacy and that one flesh union in your marriage. It is possible. Some of you may have even lost the hope that it's possible to move through this, experiencing anything different to what you are now, but it is you can move forward through that shame story and reclaim that one flesh intimacy and move towards oneness. In fact, you can be closer and stronger because you've dealt with your shame with one another. You can come out the other side stronger and tighter as a team because of it. But it's not just going to happen. It will fester away in the basement of your lives and your relationship unless you deal with it and take some intentional steps and deal with maybe a little bit of the social awkwardness that comes with having that conversation, but for heaven's sake, have it. Have it with each other, bring it out into the open, and you will be so glad that you did as you start taking some steps forward. So if you need help in that or support or a referral to a counselor or whatever it is, let me know, drop me an email confidentially. We would be more than happy, I would be more than happy just to help you take that initial step to get connected to someone who can help. If there's any way that shame is holding back your relationship, bring it into the light and deal with it. So all of these things that we've talked about that this passage raises, the issues around gender, Issues around manhood and womanhood, our sexuality, our gender identity, and relationships between the sexes, and marriage, all of these things. These are areas where the world desperately needs some hope, aren't they? I mean, these, maybe more than any other issue, are, are ways in which the world needs to see something new. Because there is so much brokenness. There is so much hurt. There is so much dysfunction and confusion and mistrust and breakdown around all these kinds of issues. 
And this is a time, this is a moment for Christians to stand forth and step forward with the gospel, with the message of Scripture, and with lives that model what healthy relationships with others and with ourselves really look like. It's a time for us to embrace who we are as men and women, whatever that looks like, but as men and as women, and live faithfully our identity as men and women created in the image of God. And it's a time for us to model healthy and good relationships between the sexes, between men and women, so that whenever men and women interact, it is with love, and it is with dignity, and it is with respect, and it is with honor, valuing each other as creatures made in the image of God. And for those of us who have entered into the covenant of marriage, it is a time for us to model what healthy marriages look like, right? Not perfect marriages, not got it all together kind of plastic veneer marriages, but real marriages that need truckloads of grace every single day where we can give and receive forgiveness and reconciliation and we can own our stuff and and acknowledge our shame and our brokenness and yet take steps forward in the midst of it all towards oneness, towards togetherness, towards unity, towards that one flesh intimacy that God still promises to married couples. And as we do these things, as we model good relationships with ourselves and with others, we're not just showing the world what good relationships look like. We are showing the world what God looks like, aren't we? Because we are modeling, we are reflecting something of the God whose image we bear. And that is what the world desperately needs to see. Let's pray. Father, we want to thank you that you've created us as men and women in your image. Uh, But as we read this story, God, for a lot of us, it can feel a long, long way from the reality of our lives and our relationships. And we want to acknowledge that, God, to you. We don't want to be fake about this and assume that 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 idyllic situation in Genesis 2 is what we now have because, God, we know that we are such broken people and we make such a mess of things, such a mess of our lives and our relationships. And, God, I know even among the group that's here this morning, God, you know the brokenness that's here. You know the shame that is here, God, in our hearts, Lord. You know the the confusion that's here. You know the struggles, Lord, the struggles that we have in our own hearts, Lord, the burdens and the struggles that we feel for our children, struggles that we have in our relationships with others. Lord, you know it, you see it all. It's not hidden from you. Even though it might be hidden from people either side of us, it's not hidden from you. And God, we just want to pray by your Holy Spirit now that you would just come and bring your grace. Lord, in whatever ways we need to receive it this morning, we pray that you would bring your healing grace. Lord, into the depth of our being. We're talking about things this morning that run very deep. Lord, things that are so, so close to our identity, so close to our soul. And Father, we just ask that you would come and just pour your healing grace into any areas of our lives, any areas of our relationship, marriages, families, just individuals, where we need to be healed, where there are wounds, where there are scars, where there is pain and where there is confusion. We pray that you would come and bring healing and bring freedom and bring hope. Lord Jesus, you are the God of hope. And so pour that hope and that peace into our lives, we pray. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So we come to the table, the Lord's table, and we remember his body and his blood uh, and his incredible sacrifice for us. We remember that really above all, this is the most important relationship that we have. All these other things we've been talking about today, they're only possible because 
of Jesus. In and through him, we have these relationships and it's our relationship with him that is most vital. And so I just encourage you through this time to keep your heart open to what God might be saying, what he might be speaking to you. Uh, for some, that might be a challenge. For others, it's an encouragement and comfort that needs to come into your heart. And whatever that is, whatever ways God is speaking and moving, just remain open to it. Uh, and let's celebrate and remember the incredible sacrifice that Jesus has made to bring us life, to bring us to himself, to make us his children and his brothers and sisters. This has been a teaching message from Shaw Community Church. For more of our teaching resources or to donate to our teaching resource ministry, or for more information on Shaw Community Church, visit www.shaw.org.nz. Alternatively, you can email office at shaw.org.nz or phone 09 415 0455. Thank you for listening.